You're listening to the Mosaic Podcast, brought to you by Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County. Each episode of this podcast will offer you excerpts from the Mosaic TV News Magazine, which airs Sunday from January to April in the Palm Beaches. Mosaic explores the most pressing issues facing the Jewish community here at home and around the world. And now, here's your host, Susan Shulman Pertnoy. Joining us today is the Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institute focusing on foreign policy and national security. Welcome, Dr. Jonathan Shanzer. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on our show today. Let's start with a very disturbing uh, uptick in the rise of anti-Semitism. It's coming from all sides, the right, the left, Islamists. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, Look, I would say that uh, we've seen a marked uptick. I think you're right to flag those three areas of concern, uh, the radical left, the radical right, as well as Islamism, which has been uh, a source of anti-Semitism for decades now. Uh, The uptick, I think, has come during the the global pandemic, for sure, as the world has come under strain economically and politically. Certainly, I think the the political environment in the United States, where I think our our parties are fraying a bit, um, also may have something to do with this. But really, the uptick, uh, I think, that we saw in May was what most disturbed me, where we saw Jews walking down the street in major cities here in the United States, as well as around the world, and people coming up and just punching them or attacking them as if to blame Jews for the actions of Israel. And that's that's problematic on a number of fronts. I think primarily the idea that you blame a, an entire religion for the acts of a state is, is deeply disturbing. But then there's the other question, which is, you know, this blend of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, this idea that you hold Israel to account uh, for things that it does in its own self-defense that you would never hold other countries to account for. And this is the real problem I see. It's this merging of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism into one very tangled ball of hate. Yes, and that was so um, brutally evident in this last Gaza conflict. Can you elaborate on that? Because I know you uh, were so moved by it. it you, you wrote a book about it in, in only 10 days. So we would appreciate if you would talk about it. Sure. I mean, look, the, the way that this was covered here in the United States, this conflict, it boggled my mind. I mean, I watched the, the conflict play out on my television screen here in suburban Washington, watching in Hebrew, watching in Arabic, and looking at the way that it was portrayed there in the region, which was very much aggression carried out by an Iranian-backed terrorist organization, Hamas, in the Gaza Strip. Israel found itself in a position where it had to respond. It had no choice as 9 million of its citizens came under threat of thousands of rockets. It responded very surgically. It responded in a very measured fashion, thankfully, because it has excellent um, missile defense. So it was able to really uh, neutralize a lot of the attacks that Hamas launched. But the war was one in which Israel really minimized casualties, tried to minimize damage while also undermining the the sort of foundation of Hamas. It was, as as far as wars are concerned, it was a well-fought war. It was something that I think most Americans can be proud of. And yet we saw this backlash against Jews on the streets. We saw this backlash against Israel. In fact, we're still seeing it today in the 
halls of Congress, where certain members of Congress, those that I would say have a deep anti-Israel animus, are trying to now zero out the funding that the United States provides for that missile defense that saved millions of lives during the war. They're trying to zero out some of the munitions that Israel uh, uses to be very surgical in its strikes, as opposed to doing a lot of damage um, and, and doing harm to civilian lives or civilian infrastructure. So here you have Israel doing everything in its power to restrain itself in a war that it did not start. And Israel is being pilloried for it. And then on top of that, Jews, just simply for being Jewish, are also being blamed. And it does raise a lot of questions about where we are headed politically in this country when something like that can happen. But also, let, let's talk about the media's portrayal. I mean, we, I, I actually had the privilege of coming here, right, coming, coming to Israel and being one of the first groups with Jewish uh, Federation of North America, invited 16 lay leaders and about four uh, uh, professionals to come to Israel right after the insurgence was complete. Two days later, we had to drop everything and come here. And we were, it, we were taken to, to the Iron Dome and we, were, we heard from generals, we heard from, from Naftali Bennett, we, we heard from Netanyahu, what was happening? And, and they did, we, one, one of the things with, with the uh, Al Jela Tower, the, yes, that was, they, they went on missions. The general went on a mission and we saw that there were children there. So they aborted the mission until they discovered that there were no children. Then they sent a not, something called a knock-knock bomb, which just warns people so they know that they, can, they should get out of the way. And they did, yet... And they bombed that building because there were there were weapons that would have destroyed the Iron Dome or or nullified its its um its what what's the word its its importance or its its capabilities that's the word and and it was and yet the media showed us that we were we were killing civilians and and doing horrible things so. What can we, how do we hold the media accountable? It's really terrible. Well, look, what you've just laid out is 100% correct. The media coverage was horrible. They made it seem as if Israel was just in yet another round with, a, with, a, with the Palestinians because, you know, they're like Tom and Jerry. They don't like each other and they fight. And that's, I think, wildly off the mark. Again, you know, Israel a, doesn't want these wars. B, fights with them, uh, f fights these wars in a way that is incredibly responsible and holds itself to accountable in ways that I think no other military does in the world. Um, and and they, look, they, 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 if they could have not had this conflict, I think they would have been much happier for it. Uh, they lost money, they lost lives. And you look at what's happening right now. This is not something that Israel wants. Yet, what we hear from the media was that Israel was carrying out war crimes, that it was firing discriminately on Gaza civilians. None of this is true. In fact, really the opposite is true. And that is that Hamas used the, the civilian population in Gaza as human shields, which is a war crime. They built a tunnel system beneath the streets of Gaza that Israel ultimately had no choice to bomb. And what Hamas did is it endangered everyone living on top of those tunnels. We also found that attack tunnels connected to schools and hospitals and civilian infrastructure. And Hamas cynically uses the population there to draw Israel into conflict where civilians are ultimately hurt. And so the fact that all of this is happening, that it's happening because Iran 
is providing the financial support and the military support for its proxy to attack Israel went completely unnoticed. The fact that when Israel did strike, as you mentioned, that it often gave warnings, and not just with knock-knock bombs, but also calling the cell phones of everyone inside a particular edifice and war warning them to get out. And in other words, Israel I, you know, fought this war. And by the way, they've been doing it. This was the fourth Gaza conflict in the last decade or so. And Israel has a consistent policy of doing all of these things yes. and fighting against these groups, regardless of what kind of dirty tricks they throw at Israel. And yet Israel is blamed. And it That's really right. has become a problem. It has been. And, and Jonathan, we have to be going to continue, but we must take a break. We'll be right back. Mosaic is brought to you through the dedication of generous corporate sponsors who fuel the work of Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County. We thank American Commercial Realty, Appleby Utifrand Wealth Management, Raymond Motorcars, Bruce Gendelman Insurance Services, Commodore, Singer, Baseman, and Braun Attorneys, First Republic Bank, Rogers Design Group, and Shapiro Pertnoy Companies. We're back talking with Dr. Jonathan Shanzer, and we're talking about the Gaza conflict and the book that you wrote. Uh, tell me, why did you write the book? Well, I think I can probably sum it up in, in, a, in a short anecdote. And that was, you may recall early on in the conflict, there was a tweet that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces put out, where they said they, were, um, they had forces on the ground neutralizing Hamas. And this was already after a couple of days of watching very frustrating coverage. And, and so when I saw that tweet, I decided to go inside uh, and turn on my TV. I turned on Israeli television and I'm watching. And it was really remarkable. The IDF um, could not confirm to the reporters in Israel that, um, that there were troops on the ground. And yet what we were seeing when I turned on American news it was all being reported that Israel had gone in and that there was a brutal war being fought inside of Gaza. And the Israeli reporters, it was really remarkable. They're looking at their phone. They're going, you know, none of my, none of my contacts can confirm this. And by the way, if you look behind me, you're not seeing fighting going on. So I don't know why this is happening. And I turned on another Israeli channel. The same exact thing happened again. They can't confirm it. And what dawned on me was that our media get it wrong more often than not. Our media, when they cover this conflict, they cover what they think they should be covering rather than what the professionals in Israel are covering. And it's a serious thing, journalism in Israel. These are not Zionist propagandists. These are people who are trying to get at the facts and it's a very competitive field. And yet our foreign media, the Americans that are dispatched there are completely detached from the realities of what we saw things like that, that disconnect happen time and time again. And so when the war ended after 11 days, I took a couple days to relax. And then I said, you know what? I've got to write about this because I'm still boiling at the disconnect between the reporting and reality. And so I've written this book. Um, and my hope is that it does help begin to set the record straight in terms of what happened during those 11 days of war in Gaza in 2021. I, I hope everybody reads your book and, and, and takes home that message. What do you think Americans can do to better educate themselves other than reading your book about conflicts such as this? 
Well, look, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, I think it's important for every um, American citizen to engage with their representatives in Congress to make sure that their concerns are heard, to make sure that members of Congress know that Israel is an important ally uh, and is important to our community. Um, and, and I think as long as that happens, I think we'll be in, in a good place. So engagement is incredibly important. But the other part of it is it's education. And I, I'm, it's not about reading my book or anybody's book for that matter. In my view, it's about understanding all sides of the conflict. I think too often we find people reading things about Israel's history specifically. And, you know, then they go back and they tell people about what Israel's doing or not doing in the context of a given conflict. What's really important, I think, is for our community and for the American community writ large to understand the Palestinian narrative, to understand what's going on in the Arab world, to understand, by the way, that the Arab-Israeli conflict, as we once knew it, that started in 1948 or before, that that is shrinking, that Israel is actually making peace with a lot of its neighbors, and it's normalizing with the region. And yet, there are countries like Iran that seek Israel's destruction and they promote proxy terrorist organizations that attack Israel. And then if what, we tr what we're trying to do is to achieve peace, we need to get at the core of the problem, which really does track back to the regime in Tehran. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gans, recently met with um, Mahmoud Abbas, who is uh, the Palestinian Authority leader. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. Well, you know, I think in the aftermath of the Gaza war, it became clear to the United States and to Israel that Hamas had really uh, taken all the oxygen out of the room, that everybody was talking about Hamas as the leaders uh, of the Palestinian people, or at least those that led the Palestinians to war in May. Now, as, as our viewers probably know, the Palestinians themselves are divided. There is Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. They're in control of the West Bank. Hamas is in control of the Gaza Split. There is actually what I would only describe as a civil war that's going on inside the Palestinian territories. And that, of course, makes it very challenging to achieve peace. But what the Israelis, I think, have done with American encouragement is they're trying to work with the Palestinian president, who himself is not a wonderful guy. I mean, he's now, uh, I think it's 16 85. years. 85. He's also yeah. 85 years old. He's 85, but he's also 16 years into a four-year term. Um, and he refuses to name a successor. There's a lot that's riding right now on the, the very shaky edifice that he has built. And so there's a lot of concern, but I think Israel put that aside. So did America. The goal here is to try to sideline Hamas to make them look less important and less consequential after a war in which they really asserted themselves, um, at least in their view, as the leaders of the Palestinian people. So Israel's doing its part. America will, too. And I suspect we'll also see some activity, diplomatic activity from the Arab states uh, in the surrounding area. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Shanzer, and we're going to switch gears for a minute. We're going to talk about your former position, which you worked for the U.S. Treasury Department, and you tracked terror finance, which is, to me, very interesting. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, uh, there are offices within the U.S. Treasury Department that is specifically dedicated to looking at illicit finance. I worked on tracking terror finance. I looked at groups like Hamas and Al-Qaeda, uh, and I, I played a small role in blocking 
funds to some of the worst financiers within those two terrorist organizations. The Treasury also is engaged in uh, uh, meeting out sanctions against those that are proliferating weapons of mass destruction, that are violating human rights uh, ac across the world. There are a lot of in engaging in uh, cyber activity, hacking. I mean, we've got sanctions for all sorts of activity that we want to punish. The Treasury Department does a terrific job in coordination with the White House and the State Department. It's probably a little known aspect of our U.S. government bureaucracy, but it plays an incredibly important role. One of your investigations led to uncovering something with the BDS movement, the Boycott, Sanction, and Divestment uh, movement. Can you tell us about what you did? Sure. Well, um, the investigation actually took place after I left the Treasury. I was working for FDD, for Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the think tank that I work for now in Washington. And we, we were, you know, we were actually very curious about the potential role of Hamas uh, or other Palestinian terrorist organizations in the so-called BDS movement. And what we found after a couple of years of investigating was that there were groups that had been fundraising for Hamas in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, that had basically been shut down by the U.S. government, by the FBI and by the Treasury. But a, a number of people created a new organization, a new cover, a new 501c3 charitable organization, distinct from the ones that had been shut down. These were more junior people, not the senior people who were directly responsible for that Hamas fundraising. And they created a new organization. And this new organization, it's based out of Chicago. It's called AMP, American Muslims for Palestine. And the group has been at the forefront of BDS activity. Now, a lot of people have asked me, well, you know, because they used to work for charities associated with Hamas, does that mean they're doing something illegal? And the answer is no, they're not. And they continue to engage in this activity very legally. There's nothing illegal about it here in the U.S. Um, at the level that they're operating. But it does raise questions about whether the BDS movement is about social, just, about social justice or if it is about the acts that Hamas supporters typically have to grind with Israel. And my assessment is it's the latter, that this is not a movement about social justice. It's about singling out Israel and making life more difficult for Israel and its supporters here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's so prevalent even today with this recent issue with Ben and Jerry's ice cream, Unilever. I mean, but, but what is, what is um, actually heartwarming is that our government is different governors are banning uh, the products because they, it, it's such a horrible thing to do. I mean, they're coming out and saying, no, 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 we're not going to stand for this. Correct. There are there are actually state laws banning BDS, the singling out of Israel. Um, and uh, we've seen country uh, uh, governors like in uh, Florida, in Illinois, South Carolina, all take measures against those that engage in BDS against Israel. And so at a state level, we are seeing pushback. And it really is it's a it's a remarkable thing and a very positive thing. Do you think the majority of Americans clearly see the anti-Semitic rhetoric that is prevalent? I think so. I think that over the last um, you know, year, year and a half, certainly during the lockdown, um, during the uh, sort of rise of the woke left in particular, um, that there has been a growing awareness uh, of the anti-Semitic sentiment that has become increasingly normal and normalized uh, on, on the streets. 
Now, I will say that it's not something that's welcomed in most places, and I see communities pushing back against it. But I think the fact that it has reached a level where we have to address it out loud um, and we have to talk about people getting beaten on the streets and you know the, the return of anti-Semitic tropes that blame Jews for the ills of the world, this is extremely troubling. I think it does have to do with the general malaise that we see within the American political system, but it may be more than that. It also could be that we're seeing the passing on of that generation of people who lived through the Holocaust and that now there is, a, you know, we're, we're looking at an environment where the world is forgetting what happened in, in really not the distant past. Oh, it's, so, it's very frightening. That's yes. right. And so we're going to have, a, we have our work cut out for us to re-educate the American public about the ills of anti-Semitism. But just, I'll say one more thing. When you start to see anti-Semitism creep into a political system, it's usually a sign of its decline. And we need to make sure that we guard the American system against that, because this is the most important country on earth. Yes, it is. Um, and also to that point, uh, there's apparently there's a, a need for a uniform definition of anti-Semitism uh, because apparently they need to clarify everything. And so everyone will be on the same page. Do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Well, five years ago, in 2016, about three dozen countries came together um, under the rubric of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, and they issued a working definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, which I think is really important. It's important that an internationally recognized definition, um, you know, really is prevalent as we begin to address the scourge of anti-Semitism here and around the world. But one of the things that I found the most interesting about this definition is that it says that when you hold Israel uh, to a different standard than every other country in the world, that that is anti-Semitism as well. In other words, you're treating the only Jewish country on earth and you're holding them to a different standard, that this cannot be, that this is something that is rejected um, by the responsible community of nations. And so uh, it's my hope that that is increasingly embraced around the world. Uh, it's a good start to have three dozen countries, but you still have about 160 more to go. Well, we've addressed a lot of difficult issues, but I wanna end on a very positive note. Let's discuss the Abraham Accords. Sure. Well, the Abraham Accords, as you probably know, were signed uh, in uh, the fall of 2020. These were remarkable uh, peace agreements reflecting a new reality in the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco and Sudan, all Arab countries. It took the step to engage with Israel uh, and to normalize ties. Now, of course, Egypt and Jordan already had peace with Israel. So now that brings the total number up to six. But what's remarkable here is that we are looking, as I mentioned earlier, at the shrinking of the Arab-Israeli conflict. This was a regional conflict back in 1948 and 67 and even 73. Since that time, we have seen, I think, a, a realization on the part of Arab states that Israel is not going anywhere, that it's a regional power. Uh, economically, diplomatically, militarily, and that it is not going to be erased intellectually. Off the intellectually, why not look at the number of Nobel prizes that come out of this country? But there is a recognition that they cannot change what is fact, and it is a recognition that Israel is a fact on the ground, and that perhaps Israel could even help these countries in terms of agriculture, in terms of intelligence, 
other assistance that they mean, need in, in tackling the threat from Iran, for example. And so we are seeing now cooperation and coordination in ways that we never saw before. And it's for someone like me who deals in a lot of bad news every day, I have to say this has been a real bright spot over the last year and a half or so. It's a demonstration to the world that Israel is not going anywhere anytime soon. Thank you so much for joining us today and for having such an informative conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mosaic Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to Mosaic on your favorite streaming platform and to leave us a review. Want more? Visit jewishpb.org mosaic where you can access full episodes of the show. To stay connected with the Jewish community of the Palm Beaches, visit jewishpb.org or follow Jewish Federation at facebook.com slash jewishpalmbeach.